everyone. Um, welcome. I'm super excited to be here tonight um, with, to ask Matt anything about his life, his love for dogs, his career that has spanned multiple um, very successful companies. Um, so Matt, present day, you are the co-founder and CEO of Bark, which um, amongst many canine products includes the monthly subscription box, BarkBox. To list off some other successes um, on your CV, you were also the co-founder of meetup.com, so maybe some people in the audience here were at our AMA two weeks ago with your co-founder of Meetup, Scott. Um, you were also an entrepreneur in residence at Dogpatch Labs, and in the present day, you spend some time as a ventures partner at Resolute Ventures. Um, so I think it'd be really great to just start with where did it all begin? How did you get to where you are today? Um, I think we'd love to all hear your story. Sure. Um, thanks for having me. Let's see, where did it all begin? Uh, I'm from Iowa, so I wear flannel shirts, like I'm in a cornfield. Um, and I made my way out of Iowa really quickly and got myself out here. So I came out to New York in 1997, and you mentioned my co-founder of Meetup, Scott. Uh, I went to work for Scott. So Scott had started a digital ad agency, uh, first of its kind in, in the mid-90s, and came out, I interviewed, and they said, do you know anything about the internet? And I was like, no, I know it exists, that's about it. And they said, okay, it doesn't matter, come here, we'll teach you everything you need to know. And that was a pretty exciting, fun time. So a lot of new businesses getting started, a lot of new concepts being formed. I remember, um, I, I remember things coming about like paying, instead of paying um, on a CPM basis to get your ads out there, paying on a cost per click. And that was a huge thing and it just derailed our agency for like months. Uh, but it was this big novel concept and it felt like something like that happened every day. Uh, so it was a really fun time, very fast paced, very educational. What we did was we represented huge brands like Disney and Staples and Capital One who essentially built websites and then they figured out, well, it's here now, but nobody comes to it. So now what do we do? And it was our job to figure out how to get people there and then get people there in a cost-efficient way and make their business work. Uh, so worked on that for a few years. We were acquired in December of 99 and acquired by a company that then went public. All worked out very well and learned a lot, made a tiny bit of money, but that was fine. Uh, and then from that experience, uh, joined one of the investors of that agency and started something new. And the new thing uh, I, I like to say was way, way ahead of its time and we executed very poorly. Um, we had created in a credit card size form factor, uh, we added a, uh, a screen to it basically, a very thin window where you could and then from the card, you could send and receive text messages. So, so, uh, so like a, a smartphone. A smartphone, but in a credit card size format. Um, I'd like to see that today. Even the <laughs> thickness of it, and it had transaction capability. Um, 
and it was pre-BlackBerry, pre-smartphone, texting wasn't really a thing in the US. So we were just trying to create a new messaging channel. Um, great concept, um, and like I said, we executed very poorly. Uh, in fact, we didn't execute at all. It's a huge lesson for me. We, we hired a lot of the wrong people for that stage of company, and we worked on it for two years and launched nothing. So no, no customer ever saw anything, even though we spent $30 million. Um, so launch, get stuff out there. <laughs> Big lesson. Um, but we, we saw that we'd struggled with it. We, we just weren't making progress, and you kind of feel that. And then 9-11 uh, happened here in New York, and that became both uh, a, a bit of an excuse for us to wind it down and also a bit of a calling. And so I was still very friendly with Scott, and uh, we were inspired by that, and um, we, we were spending a lot of time together day to day, and, and that took us down the path of meetup. Uh, I didn't know he was here two weeks ago, so that's cool. Um, but that was, that was quite a journey. That was, for me, uh, eight years. Eight years of, of doing it with, with Scott and the rest of us. Um, boy. Just learned a lot and really, really happy and proud of how that went. And uh, we, we were talking before about um, was it a messy breakup or is, is there a scandal just to it? To check <laughs> There's really not. The, the scandal to it was uh, I left when the company was about 45 people and I was feeling overwhelmed. It, I was like, this is a huge company. I can't deal with this. 45 people. This is way too many. Um, and I didn't know how to manage it all, and so I was like, I gotta get out. Um, and I left, and then ended up, as you mentioned, at, um, at Polaris Ventures, running Dogpatch Labs for them. And that it's a similar setting to this, uh, with a lot of entrepreneurs working on really cool stuff every day. My job was to bring them in and then get them helping each other and help wherever I could and just create a really great space. I love this space, this is really well done. Um, but for me, that's very, uh, very addictive. And so at the same time, I got a dog and I wanted to create products for him or I just, I, I just wanted him to be really, really happy all the time. And so whenever there was a moment of I could do something and he'd be a little bit happier. I wanted to do it. That led to BarkBox, which I had no intention of starting a company. I wanted to build a product just for my dog. I wanted to learn how a commerce business worked because we were seeing a lot of those investment opportunities. I just didn't know the fundamentals. And so it was supposed to be a side project. Um, I loved my job. I loved working at Dogpatch. I did not want to leave. And in fact, it took me eight months to leave. Um, so I got dragged into this, and I'm very, very happy I did. But since then, it's been, uh, I guess, seven years since we've done that. 
And along the way, um, at Bark, you've had a number of products. So BarkBox is just one. Maybe you could talk us through the different products you've had and maybe some that worked and some that didn't. Because <laughs> I think as a lot of entrepreneurs in the room here tonight, we're very aware of what it's like to see something that you build feel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and we have that, that culture of starting a lot of things and re recognizing that they, they won't all work. Um, it tends to be pretty brutal. Uh, we, we like to smother things and put them out of their misery quickly. Um, and, and so we have, we have BarkBox. Uh, I don't know the, the, best, the best way to go about this, but uh, early on we would just try a lot of stuff. Um, so one thing that we, we thought was very interesting or, or broken, if you will, um, uh, the dog, our dog is always our customer. And, and that's, we're trying to make the, the world better for them. Uh, BarkBox was inspired by that, and it's about bringing um, 30 or 60 minutes a month of joy and happiness and fun into the home where it doesn't exist before. Basically, the only fun experience you and your dog can have every, every day or through a month is, let's go to the park. And that's great, but we wanted to introduce a new one. Um, Another rough experience for a dog is going to the vet. And my dog gets very stressed. He gets into a small room and he's a huge dog. He's a Great Dane, um, 130 pounds. And he just doesn't like the small room, doesn't like what's gonna happen in there, uh, gets stressed by other animals. And so we created an at-home vet service called Bark Care. And we were having vets on scooters come around and come into your home. and. It's still to this day the favorite thing of mine that we've ever built, uh, and I love it. it. But we were having a hard time making the, the business model work. So sadly, we shut that down. Uh, another thing that we had early on was a media property called Bark Post, uh, and that grew quite big. We, we were at a point of about 12 million um, monthly unique visitors and we were building a media business out of it but we didn't like some of the trends we were seeing in media where it seemed everything was based off of Facebook provides all of your traffic um, and the ad dollars flowing more and more in that direction so we went away from that as a business and seemed seems to be the right call uh, but a lot of our I'd say successful new product development has been around around the core. So BarkBox has led us to learning from our customer. And we learn in a lot of ways. We survey them. Uh, we hear from about 25% every month through a survey. We have a team in Columbus, Ohio, we call the happy team. And they will talk to, like talk to, usually through Facebook Messenger, but also phone, email, text. We support 12 channels of communication. And they will talk to, in a given month, uh, about 200,000 customers and learn more about their dogs so we can personalize product. And that leads to new product development for us. We have a product called Super Chewer, which is for more outdoorsy dogs, uh, more durable items. Um, We've started to dabble a little bit in health and wellness. Um, what else? 
it seems like there's a lot going on. And then distribution like is just direct to consumer, e-commerce, uh, Amazon. We're in 20 retail stores or 20 retail chains, Target being the largest. So about 3,500 doors right now. And I've I read a lot about the culture that you've built within Bark. Um, so present day, you're still headquartered in New York. Yep. How many employees are you at now? Uh, total, we're about 425 and about 200 here in New York. Okay. Um, and I read this really interesting thing that you, I think it was an interview you did with the Tory Burch Foundation. Um, so Matt, Matt did this interview with them and he said, um, I see my company as having two customers. Now, correct me if I'm misquoting you, that my company has two customers. One is the dog and the dog parents who receive a product every month. But the other customer is my employees. And that's how we look at building culture within our company. So maybe you could speak to what that means in practice day-to-day for employees at at Bark? Yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's kind of always keeping that in balance, that you're trying to serve that end consumer for us who is primarily the dog. We have to deal with dog parents um, until dogs can transact. Um, but the- Bark the, pay. Yeah, oh, I like that. Um, but the, the dog is really where our focus is. Uh, and then you have, in our case, we have investors. And so you, you kind of have to balance that world. And then the team that works for us. And that's a huge constituency. And, it, and it's tough because it's fast growing. There's always new things being created, new opportunities, jobs changing. Um, I had all this responsibility. Now I have less because we've brought in someone who really knows that thing. Um, and so uh, it's a big part of the challenge of building the communication systems to, that you're getting everyone the right information, making them feel very connected to what you're doing, that they're aware of the goals and um, where we're going and how important they are. And uh, it's, it's uh, it feels obvious to say, but it's a really, really, full-time job. It's an intense part of my job. And you said that you left Meetup whenever there were 45 employees, because that felt like a lot. Um, I'm wondering, were there any sort of crossovers between what you learned at Meetup that you took into Bark? Are, are there new things you've learned growing the organization you know, beyond 45 employees at Bark now? I just, I'd love to know the, the comparison of those two experiences. There, there are certainly a lot of learnings that I brought along from Meetup. Uh, it's also very different where Meetup, uh, Scott and I are co-founders, but he was the CEO. And so I think in that experience, I had that, that uh, I think, frustration that any employee has uh, of like, why doesn't he listen to me? How, how stupid is he? Why doesn't he, it, why does he get that? Now I said something controversial. Um, <laughs> Ask me anything. <laughs> <laughs> but just that frustration of like, I don't get it. I don't understand those decisions. And then all of a sudden, you're on the other side of it, and you're the CEO, and you get it. And I appreciate Scott so much more <laughs> since then. Um, the, I don't know that I ever got comfortable with a big company. I think with Bark, 
it just sort of happened to us and it happened really fast and there wasn't time to think about it and absorb it. It just one day we were in a small office and there were 10 of us and then all of a sudden there were 100. And the, the best thing that we've got going is I've got a strong management team, um, including myself, there are six of us. And now I've got, uh, with my co-founders, I have eight years of experience with them. Um, we have the founding CTO of Meetup came over and is our CTO, so I've worked with him for about 18 years. Um, the, uh, our head of operations, I've worked with and known for about 10, 11 years. So there's a lot of familiarity and great managers, and that helps a lot. It makes the organization seem a lot smaller for me. Cool. Um, I think we're going to go over to questions now that we had submitted before the event. Um, so first up, we have David Magruder. I'm really sorry if I said your second name wrong. Hey, thanks, Matt. Uh, just wanted to kind of go to the beginning and, 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 you know, what was that like? And when did you kind of reach the point when, it would just, when you realized it was a sustainable and leverageable model kind of going forward? Uh, the beginning of Bark? Yeah. Uh, well, there are a few stages to that. So, like I said, um, I didn't start this with the idea of this is a business. I wanted to create a product that was great for my dog, and I wanted to learn a little bit. I really, I thought this would be 100 people out there that are getting this, and I know all of them. And so, uh, I learned a lot about starting fast in that way. Uh, the first thing we did was... We came up with the idea, and the next day had built what was a mock-up of like a homepage. And all of a sudden, that became my screensaver on my phone. And I'm meeting a lot of people every day, and I would just take it out, and I'd show them. I'd say, like, what do you think about this? And I'd hear all the questions that they had, like, how much does it cost? What comes in it? That starts to refine the product a little bit and make it better and better. Uh, and so it's... First, like, do you have something that people really, really care about and they love and they're willing to pay for? After a few weeks of showing people, I, I kept hearing the thing of like, tell me when it's live and I'll order it. And so I started to carry a square, I'd plug it in the phone and I'd say, it's live. And then you really get feedback, like um, you get real questions, people really want to know, what is this thing? Um, but those became the first customers and that sort of shapes the product. When it got into the world, it's a whole new thing. Um, I, there was a moment, I think, like, you're looking for a signal of, is there a market for this? Um, will it, is there a real potential for it to, to have critical mass? For me, that moment was, like, five months in when, I'll just give you a timeline. Christmas that year, I bought my dad a Kindle, and then I showed him how to buy a book on the Kindle. That was his first ever online purchase, um, Christmas of 2011. Uh, I never talked to him about anything I'm working on because he thinks it's all stupid uh, and will tell me so, so I don't even bother. Uh, he, he found a mention of this product on Facebook in April of 2012, and he bought it. And I noticed it in the customer logs 
and I thought it was a joke. I thought somebody was playing a joke on me. And so it turned out it was him. And to me, that was like, we've got product market fit. If that guy is going to buy it, um, <laughs> done. So that was a real important moment. Um, I also, so I'll be completely honest, uh, given the background, like I was a growth guy and so I was very obsessed with like, let's just pile up a lot of customers and let's retain them. I was very obsessed with retention. When our first customer left, I called him and, and I like persuaded him to come back. I was obsessed with, we will have 100% retention. Didn't work out. But um, I was growth, 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 growth until we brought in a finance person in, uh, say, the winter of 2012. And because I had no commerce background and just no sense, apparently, he started to explain the concept of gross margin to me. And uh, he, he was like, what you're doing right now is you're sending out a box and you're wrapping dollar bills around it and sending it to a person. So learned a lot from that. And then we started to shape it and we shaped it. Um, we didn't really get it to work on a model basis until, uh, until we got into making our own products. And that, there, there are a lot of refinements. Um, it, it's just like constant balance of like, can you grow fast enough? Um, can you acquire customers at the right rate? Can you retain enough of them? Can you get the, the margin to the place? Is the price point right? That is just day after day after day, testing and tweaking, testing and tweaking. Um, I have a, one of my lead investors who's on our board has this quote he loves to say to me, he's like, commerce is easy, you just have to be perfect at everything. And that's how it feels day to day, is like that you're constantly going along this shaky bridge and every step is a careful step. So the model right now works really well. Um, it's in perfect balance, not perfect, but it's in pretty good balance and it's functioning really well and there's opportunity for improvement, but we keep working at it every day. So and the conditions on the ground change all the time. I don't know, did it? That's good, okay. Thank you. Um, next question is from the other David, David Bernal. I believe you have two questions. So start with the first one, then we'll come back to you. Great. So the other David here, hey. Hey. <laughs> so my question is more so about uh, organizations that create spaces for pets. So either a public agency such as a park or a organization or for-profit real estate developers. How, what are they doing well with uh, dog-friendly amenities and what can they do better? Um, they can do a lot better and we, we actually believe that so much. We opened uh, a space like that in Nashville last year. Uh, so we've opened, it was a subscription space, so you had to pay to enter, but not a lot. Um, we ran it as a four-month pilot, and we wanted to make it a place where people f felt very comfortable bringing their dogs and spending not 10 or 15 minutes, but three or four hours. And so the amenities we built out were, uh, that I think are lacking in a lot, in most of those spaces. One is um, 
the, the basics. It's safety and security and that, um, I think when you go to a lot of public dog parks, you see um, your, your dog will get into a scuffle or two dogs will get into a scuffle and an absentee owner who's just like on their phone, not paying attention, d thinks it's funny, doesn't care. So staffing was a big thing, that we have people on the ground who are there to um, maintain the order of the place. And when something like that happens, step in and um, be a little bit forceful about you need to take care of your dog. Um, and makes people feel safe in coming there and that their dogs are not gonna go home limping or something. Um, that it's clean, that, and then that it's comfortable. So not that you have cold metal benches to sit on, but that you have really nice chairs and setups. Um, we built these, I don't know what you call cylinders that had heating and air conditioning inside of them. They have tables, they have electricity, they have Wi-Fi. So you can go there and set up and work all day long. We serve drinks, we serve coffee, we put on events. Um, it became a real destination. And, and then a cool thing happened too. There were, um, what do we have, about 700 members, I think, and they became, they became friends. Like they built a real community there. They would show up on Friday night at seven and hang out and drink until midnight. And not, not four people, but like 50 people. Uh, it was just incredible. So great experience and we'll, we'll probably take that further. Your second question. Great, and my second question, question uh, you, you touched on it earlier about uh, health and wellness. Uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on what do you think about CBD products for dogs and how likely do you think they are to become a, uh, a powerful sort of product in the industry? Uh, I love them and we, I think they'll be huge. We sell them. Uh, that's one of our product lines. We, we did some work on it last year. We learned a lot and now we're back in the lab um, creating new form factors and new products that'll come, come out later this year. Um, I'm a huge believer, um, especially when it comes to like the, the joint issues. Um, like I said, I have a huge dog and he's older. He's nine years old. He's 130 pounds. His legs are like that, that big. And so Great Danes are known to have hip and joint issues. Uh, he was having, he does these day trips twice a week where he goes to Harriman State Park, runs up the mountain, runs down, he's out there for six hours. Uh, and he was starting to get to the point where it was too difficult for him and he couldn't recover. Um, just couldn't even walk, like couldn't take a step, go up one step. And that was maybe a year and a half ago. And I started to give him CBD at that point and he's a whole new dog. Um, his recovery is next day, like no problem, ready to go again. So I've seen that part um, for myself and I believe, and we've seen customers buying it and being very enthusiastic and getting many, many stories like that. So I think it's a huge, huge opportunity. Uh, people talk about the anxiety or calming them down. I think that's a little more unknown. Um, Maybe there's something there, but I, I haven't used it that way personally, and I haven't seen it, so I don't know. Thank you. Um, next, we have a question from Stacy. 
Hi. Hi, thank Friend you. Earth. Hi, Matt. Um, so I was visiting friends in Finland last summer, and I walked into my friend's kitchen, and her dog, Timo, had a birthday. And she was constructing this cardboard box and took a package of hot dogs and put them in little holes, and those were the candles. And I thought, that's really great for Timo's birthday now, but wouldn't it be great if Timo had a BarkBox subscription? And while I get it that probably Finland wouldn't be the first market you would go into, but um, I wonder if you have any plans to expand internationally. Because I did try to subscribe, <laughs> but um, it's not possible. Uh, we do. We've, we've been really focused on the U.S. and expanding product lines. Um, there, there's not a set date. Uh, I think one of the easiest ways for us to expand internationally quick is turn on Amazon. So we sell products via Amazon in the U.S. And uh, what I'm told and what it seems is it's a pretty trivial process of just, okay, now we're in the U.K., and get the product into the right warehouse over there and off you go. Uh, so I think that would be like a quick early step as far as direct-to-consumer subscription. Um, not this year. And I think we will will likely dabble in it next year and start to learn. Um, and I wouldn't be so sure that Finland wouldn't make it. My, my co-founder's from Denmark, so we, we love the Nordic countries. I'm sure they'll make it there sooner rather than later. Um, he's anxious to get back to Denmark, so maybe. Great. I know a few customers in Ireland that I can set <laughs> okay. you up with as well, don't worry. Um, okay, next question is from Gemma. Hello. Um, I did have one question, but you've answered it already, so I have a backup. Um, in a world where subscription box services, are there's so many, um, what do you think is BarkBox's special source? Um, I know my dogs love BarkBox, um, but how do you think you've managed to not only outlast you know, competitors, um, but continue to grow as you have? Yeah, uh, a little bit of luck. Um, I, I think it, one part of it is the, the first question there of that management of all these different factors and keeping them in balance day to day is really, really difficult um, for anyone. And so just staying on that is, it's exhausting. It's been seven years of doing that day after day after day and not letting it slip. Um, I think some of the natural built-in advantages we have, you mentioned your dog loves it. Like we have a really easy customer versus uh, if you're in beauty or makeup. Um, you know, my dog, I say treat, he loves it, that's fine. Good enough. Um, toy is good. So everything you offer to them is great. They're happy, they love it. Um, so we have a very easy customer. My dogs that. like the actual box as well. They're like ripping <laughs> yeah. it up, just FYI. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's one part of it. Um, the other is, uh, it sounds like I'm picking on beauty, it's just the easiest example here, but uh, up front, we have about 80, 85% of our customers or purchasers are women. Um, and it's, boy, 65% um, uh, are either married or living with their significant other. And so, 
I, I think in those households, if they're like my household, um, I'm going to say names. I'm not picking on anyone, I swear. But like Birchbox comes in, Stitch Fix comes in, and then they hit the credit card. And I look at those, and I roll my eyes. And I'm like, geez, what, what are we doing here? Um, BarkBox comes in, and that's a purchase that everyone in the house gets behind. So it's not one of those contentious things that gets argued about, of like, why are you wasting money on makeup? It's the dog loves it, we all do this together. So I think that gives us an advantage in retention as well and makes, makes the whole model work. Um, really, really focused on great products and personalization, so we try to listen and then respond with what, what, every, um, what every dog wants. So right now we're shipping 650,000 units a month. And of those, we are shipping 115,000 unique assortments every month based on what we know about your dog and my dog. So those are some of them. So I, I wanted to go back um, to ask you a question about your career path. So with Meetup, you were, you know, I'm not sure if you were there at the stage where they were pitching for VC money, but you were yep. very much, you know, on one side of the table. And then you went to the other side, um, well, certainly working with entrepreneurs, and then for Bark, you had to pitch for VC money, but you sort of had insight with Resolute. Venture. So I, I just wanted to know what it, it was like being on both sides of the table and, and what the fundraising process for Bark was like as well. Uh, it's, it's funny. So I came out of Polaris and, and thought like, okay, this will be a breeze. We'll just raise a seed round, no problem. Uh, and sort of took that approach to raising our seed round and got just got that thrown right back in my face. It was like, because you've been here, the bar is that much higher, and you really have to impress us. Uh, but I was lucky that Resolute led our seed round, and we got it together. Uh, that's a huge leg up of like having that relationship and someone ready to lead, and that made it easy. The next round was our Series A, which was led by RRE, who participated in the seed round. And Stuart there called and said, hey, I think it's time for a Series A. How about $5 million? And I'm like, what's the price? And he said, $20 million. Like, OK. So that was that pitch. Um, and the same thing happened with the, the Series B. Um, then we went out and we did a, a real process for our Series C. Uh, and that, that was a bit of a taste of what you see in the future, um, at least for our future. We're, we're on a, a path of going public. So we, we engaged in an advisor um, who helped us package up all our materials, put together a list of everyone to go see, scripted us, and, and we met Trip from August Capital. And um, it was an exhaustive process, but uh, I think fairly smooth. So. Uh, sorry. Did, did you I ever have any investors in your difficult seed round who just didn't get it? Or, mm -hmm. you know, were, were there a lot of dog owners in the room? Were there maybe people who had experienced <laughs> another subscription service? No one who was experiencing any other subscription service. Um, the, <laughs> the funny thing is the investor who didn't get it and didn't believe in it at all was Mike from Resolute. He was like, this is a stupid idea and it's never going to work. And he invested in it 
and got lucky, I guess. Um, sorry, there was, oh, that's, that's the other thing is like when we actually went out and pitched, um, it, it's, it, it is remarkable. So we would walk into, we probably went to 80, 100 investment, investor offices and you come in and you meet a receptionist who on, on Sand Hill Road is more often than not a, a woman and we'd walk in and they would say to us, oh my God, I'm so excited you're here. I love your product. My dog goes crazy for it. Oh my God, I've seen you on the books for like two weeks. I couldn't wait for you to come in. And then you walk into a room with over, like we all know that venture is overwhelmingly male. And you sit down with a man who's like, I just don't get this product. I, I don't know who would buy this. It's like, she's sitting out there. Um, so uh, the man who doesn't have, or or a woman who doesn't have a dog, couldn't connect to it at all, just didn't get it, had no use for it whatsoever. As soon as we find someone who has a dog and treats them like family, that's it, easy, easy check. Um, so Trip at August loves his dog and loved the product, got it right away. Um, we've now started, I make the joke when we talk to, um, investors as we start thinking about the public market it's like do you have a dog is always the first question it's like no this is a waste of time we shouldn't even do this you will not you won't connect to it that's that's a huge hurdle awesome thank you um okay we're going to open it up for questions from the floor anybody have yep front row oh there's a microphone coming for you Hi, this is uh, very exciting so in terms of um Social innovation, how, do you support any dog shelters with any of your profits or any donations or dog rescues or similar projects? Yes, we do. We, we work with um, about 1,200 shelters or rescues across, well, across the world. Um, so we have ongoing relationships where we're donating money, toys, treats, um, really anything that they need. Uh, and then we also, boy, we get, we get involved in a lot of stuff. Um, there, are, there are natural disasters that happen pretty regularly. So when that happens, we tend to come in with, again, donations of those um, to those areas. Like in the past couple of years, Houston, Puerto Rico, um, as a couple of those examples, um, we're Pretty, we're regularly sending people to um, uh, out on projects, let's say. So there's a group that just came back. I think a dozen people went to Puerto Rico and they have, uh, they have an ongoing effort to spay and neuter dogs there. And so we sent a group down to volunteer and help. Um, I guess it's an incredible thing. I, I didn't go, but that they start at 5 a.m. and there's a line down the street where it's free to come for a vet visit and then spay and neuter. And so our group helps assemble the crowd, bring them through, get them prepped, communicate with them, walk them through the whole process. Um, so volunteering at different things like that. Uh, oh yeah. Did you allocate any equity, for example, to ASPCA or North Shore or even a small percentage as a symbolic? 
Uh, no, we haven't allocated any equity. It's uh, actually a good idea. It, I think we would. I don't know that there's one organization that we would do that for, um, but more towards, uh, yeah, I think in the same way that the donations are very fluid, that we would be opportunistic about it. Hello. Questions um, here. I'm Alex. I'm, I'm wondering, <clears throat> what do you see as areas of future growth? But I'm also curious about your experience with um, uh, Open Sky because it, uh -huh. it, 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 you know, you were an advisor, but you got acquired by Alibaba, which yeah. is which is not a, a frequent thing to see. Uh, you know, a Chinese company acquiring a New York company. Yeah. Uh, I'll I'll start with that one. So. Open Sky is a funny thing where uh, I came off of working at Meetup. Open Sky was started by this guy, John Kaplan, who's a friend of mine. And he came from about.com. Um, I was talking to his boss, Scott Kernett, about actually running an incubator like this with him. But I didn't know Scott, so I called John and said, we talked to me about, about Scott. And I went and met him. And he said, let me tell you about what we're doing here. I was like, okay, great. So I heard it, and then he said, you know what, it makes me sad that you just are sitting home alone all day, that you're not coming in, you're not interacting with people. Why don't I pay you to come here and just sit and answer your personal email, and we'll have lunch every day. And I was like, okay, I'll just come sit in your office. And so I did, and then all of a sudden, he's, he would stick his head in my little office and say like, can you come in here and just listen to this for a minute? And all of a sudden, I'm in product meetings, and then I'm in the next thing. And uh, he always made the joke that he kidnapped me, which wasn't much of a joke. Um, he kidnapped me. And you were allowed to leave the office, though, in the evening. I right? was you allowed. You weren't like, locked in. <laughs> yeah, I was allowed. But all of a sudden, I was just there. And I did that for mm, not, not quite a year, maybe. Um, and then made my way to Polaris and, and running Dogpatch. So I, I don't know anything about the acquisition by Alibaba other than it happened. Uh, I'd tell you if I knew anything, but I really don't. I just know it happened. Uh, and that John's a cool guy. Um, what was the other question? Uh, so I was wondering, where do you see growth? So, so you mentioned um, you know, that um, 85% of yeah. your customers are women. Uh, what, what, what do you see as areas of growth? What are you investing into? Uh, so it's different products, uh, different product lines for us. And I mentioned, for example, Super Chewer, which is for a different dog, but it's also for a different human. And so that audience is um, more male than female, uh, where BarkBox is coastal, uh, coastal Florida, Texas, uh, Super Chewer is the Midwest, the West, rural regions where dogs have big outdoor spaces and yards and they're large dogs. So definitely creating products for dogs that we have not yet served. Um, talked about CBD before, so going into health and wellness products, um, different reaching customers where they want to buy. And so that, that takes us into Target and other retail partners, takes us to Amazon where a lot of people buy. Uh, it really is just more and more distribution channels and more and more products. 
Thank you. And there are, the, the dog space has been ignored for so long. It's just been food. It's food, 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 food. And not, nothing wrong with food, but there's this whole other element to a dog of fun and enjoyment and health and so much opportunity. Thank you so much. Hey, my hey. name is Jim. Um, I have a question regarding your retail strategy. And you mentioned the Target as being one of your customers. I'm assuming Petco and PetSmart are Target companies as well for you. To, mm -hmm. to, what about brick and mortar? And what about experiential? What about the equivalent? I mean, you mentioned that women are the predominant initial first purchasers. What about the American girl experience for your dog, where you come and it's the birthday party and it's the grooming and it's the clothes <laughs> and it's the whole, the whole package. That's just a different, you know, that yeah. would be a, a different way than just opening a store. Yeah, and that's, that's exactly it. We've been, uh, we've been re reluctant to just open a store to say like, okay, now come in and buy our product. Um, we want, if we go down that road, we want it to be something special and unique. Um, so the first, not the first, but the most recent take on that was the park I described before, where we saw that as a destination where the park brings you in, and then there's retail available there. So that's one take on it. Um, we keep experimenting and trying to find something that makes it unique. Uh, I think two years ago, we did this thing where uh, we created uh, an experience for the dog, which was kind of a big open space like this. And we'd put a, a harness on the dog that ha had an RFID chip in it, and then let the dog go in the room full of products. And then we would um, send that out to their, their person's phone on an app that basically said, here are the, d the products your dog loves the most based on playtime. Uh, we'd give them an hour in the room, and then it was very easy to click on those and order those products. Um, it was super cool. It did not turn out, <laughs> it, the products sold really well, so on average, a customer would spend $102. Um, but the experience itself didn't really go the way we thought it would. Uh, people would reserve a time, they'd come in, they'd drop off their dog, and they'd say like, okay, I'll be back. And they would leave and like go shopping or go get coffee or do something for an hour and then come back and we'd say, okay, these are the products your dog loved. And they'd say, that's nice. I'll take these instead. Completely ignored it, like it didn't matter. So it became a daycare where they felt obligated to buy at the end and they didn't buy what their dog loved. Um, so we're, it's a long way of saying we're always, we continue to look for the, the unique opportunity, um, like the one you just described, um, that we can create a real special space, but we don't feel like we've hit it yet. Um, here. Great, thanks. So I think this is the last question. Um, so, in a more sort of fantastical bent, my wife and I, I mentioned that I'm a dog owner, um, and I constantly, try to convince my wife that the dog understands us. And I imagine this, that there's a possibility at some point in our lifetime, someone will invent an interface that allows us to actually communicate with dogs in some way. And I'd be curious, if someone invented something that allowed 
humans to communicate with dogs. Would that make you more excited or worried about, to your previous point, about your the future for your business? How would you lean into that or lean away from that? Or would that be make you afraid or not afraid? I'd be super excited. And, and how come? Like, well, because I could talk to my dog. Um, I'd, I'd love to know what's on his mind. And he probably thinks I'm a fool. But I'd love to talk to him. Um, and, and I feel like that would just, um, overall, like from a, a selfish business point of view, it can only make us smarter about the products we're making for them. They might think like, this bully stick tastes awful. Why do they keep giving it to me? Um. But to your previous <laughs> point where you said one of the easy good things for you is that y your customers are easy and they like everything or you're, they don't necessarily put up a, a complaint. And yeah. that would invite some complexity, no? Or... We, we've already put the complexity on ourselves, so to me, that's just more data. That's exciting. Like, I want to learn more about the dog. Cool. Thank you so much for coming tonight. Really glad to have you here. Um, thanks, everyone. Uh, you could maybe grab Matt before you, he leaves if you've got any other questions, but yeah. thank you, Matt. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. Thank you.